If you were around in the late 1980s, you probably saw a Garfield plushie hanging onto a car window with suction cups. These toys were omnipresent until the mid-90s, when they gradually declined into the aether. One could be forgiven for assuming that the suction cup Garfield plushies had simply run their course, but it turns out that they were yanked off store shelves by the Garfield people themselves when they were at the height of their popularity. When asked to explain this curious decision, Garfield creator Jim Davis has explained that he wanted his character to have a sort of quiet ubiquity. The goal is for Garfield to play the long game. He's always around, but never at the forefront of the pop culture zeitgeist. If something Garfield related blows up to the point of becoming a fad, the thinking is that this could make the character obnoxious to the public and could inspire a backlash. Garfield, like Snoopy, Bugs Bunny, or Spider-Man, isn't supposed to be tied to one era or one moment in time. Garfield is in everything, but not obtrusively. This sounds like a savvy enough marketing plan, and it seems to be working out okay for Garfield, but Pokemon kind of flies in the face of those theories. If you were around in the late 90s, you know that Pokemon was fucking inescapable. It's possibly one of the last pop culture phenomena of the 90s, a period where the monoculture hadn't collapsed entirely. Pokemon was a fad in the same way that the Ninja Turtles were less than 10 years earlier. It blew up in ways comparable to Star Wars, the Hula Hoop, or the Beatles. And yeah, Pokemon fell from that apex relatively quickly. SpongeBob SquarePants dethroned it in the ratings a year after the film came out. Still, that backlash feared by the Garfield people never really came for Pokemon. In the almost 30 years since its launch, Pokemon uh, rarely recaptured its prominence, yet it's never really gone away either. New games routinely debut to robust sales, the anime is still chugging along, and every now and again the franchise retakes the spotlight. Pokemon has a lot of nostalgic adult fans who came of age playing and watching it, but it easily finds new fans in subsequent generations as well. So, what is it about Pokemon that gives it such longevity? What is it about Pokemon that distinguishes it from something like Cabbage Patch Kids or Strawberry Shortcake, pop culture fads that faded to embers once their moment passed? We'll be asking that question and others while examining the first movie. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Alright, joining me on this episode is Letitia. Hello, Letitia. Hi, Ryan. So, uh, I brought you here because you have lots of important opinions about anime. I do. I watch a lot of anime. And in particular, you spend a lot of down moments engorging yourself in uh, Pokemon content. Yeah, I watch a lot of Pokemon challenges on YouTube. It's a lot of people in our age group, surprisingly. It's not a lot of young people, you would think, but it's a lot of people in like their mid-20s, early 30s. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, what is it about this particular franchise that grabs you? I think it's I think it has to do with like the challenge aspect of it of catching your first Pokemon and then training them and defeating the gym leaders and the local trainers. Something about catching something that's small and weak and watching it grow and evolve and getting it stronger so it can defeat more and more opponents is really fun. It's also really fun to see like challenges on YouTube where it's like, can I defeat Pokemon Red with only one Weedle? And Weedle is one of those weak Pokemon that only has like two moves and they'll bring it all the way to the Pokemon League and you'll see it in the credit scene. It's like, one Weedle won the whole Pokemon game and you're just like, that's so messed up but so cool. Kind of like the people who play the law-abiding version of Grand Theft Auto, like where you beat the game without breaking any laws. Pretty much, it's like it's like the game is like, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to catch a team of Pokemon and train them and raise them, not just pick one Pokemon and make it totally overpowered. I guess that is one of the appeal points, is that uh, Pokemon makes you work for it. If you had godlike uh, abilities at the very beginning, it would get kind of boring for you, but you have to build it up. Maybe that's why people like Minecraft so damn much, too. 
I like Minecraft. I played a bit of Minecraft before on my computer. and I, it's, it's the same aspect. You start out with nothing, and then as you progress through the game, you have something. And Pokemon's a lot like that. You start out with just one Pokemon, and then you can catch more. You can just take that one Pokemon and turn it into a total Chad. Yeah, this whole uh, thing about, well, you, you start off weak, and then you get incrementally larger challenges, which cause you to bulk up as you progress along. People should tell video game makers about that. They might factor it into more games. You would think that, but I've, I found a lot of video games that can be surprisingly hard in the beginning, and then as you get stronger, they just get easier because you can get really overpowered really quickly because of the hard challenge at the beginning. Like, um, The Legend of Zelda is a good example of this. Like, I played Breath of the Wild for, like, I think 250 hours, and I remember just at the end of it, I was so overpoweredly strong that when I actually went to beat the game and defeat Ganon, it took me, like, 10 minutes, like, 5 minutes to defeat the whole, to defeat the final boss, and I was like, wow, you can challenge it, but the very beginning of the game with your starter weapons but doing at the end when you have the full heart containers and all of the rare swords and everything that's totally different which inspires some people to try to beat a game with a weedle yes with a weedle uh, yeah every rpg i played well i haven't played that many beginning uh you have to pinch every penny that you have because you go to the store and there's only so much you can get but towards the end of the game money means nothing anymore yeah money basically just becomes like a chore almost you're like oh i have nine hundred ninety nine thousand polka dollars i wonder what i'll do with it Anyways, before we get into the plot recap, I figured I'd give you a very basic telescoped overview of the franchise. Uh, I'm going to be leaving a lot of stuff out, but this is the, the basic strokes. The initial concept of Pokemon originates in Satoshi Tajiri. Uh, he credits his childhood fascination with obsessively catching and cataloging the insects and amphibians found in various ponds around his uh, childhood home. Japan's rapid industrialization in the mid-20th century, however, destroyed most of the nature around Tajiri. That feels ominous. Uh, by the time he was 13, Tajiri's interest shifted towards the arcade hall. Uh, he began publishing Game Freak, one of Japan's earliest gaming fanzines. Tajiri's extensive gaming nerdery led him to befriend Sunakazu Ishihara, who had training in computer games and was part of Japan's first wave of software designers and video game engineers. Ishihara was also a card game enthusiast and had created a number of card games throughout the 80s. That would become relevant later. Ishihara also had contacts in Japanese television, most notably with producer uh, Shigesato Itoi. By the way, while I have done my best to look up proper pronunciations for each of these names, Japanese is a tonal language and as an ugly American, I am probably butchering the hell out of a lot of these. My apologies, I'm doing the best I can. In 1986, Game Freak expanded from publishing to video game design. Their first success was the 1989 game Quinty. While working on Quinty, Tajiri was intrigued by the possibilities of Nintendo's brand new Game Boy handheld console device, particularly the device's ability to link up to other Game Boys for localized play. Tajiri was also inspired by Dragon Quest II, an RPG where power-up items of various levels of rarity would just pop up at random while you wandered through the game. His boyhood hobby of bug collecting came back to his thoughts, leading him to conceive of a game where players caught randomly generated monsters and either battled them against each other or traded them with other players like, you know, baseball cards or comic books or, you know, other things that kids swap at lunchtime. Etoy landed a deal with Nintendo in 1990, and the team tinkered with Pokemon for six years in between commitments to other projects, notably the Mother franchise, Thinking that the Pokemon experience would be enhanced by moderate differences in the games, Pokemon was released in two slightly different versions, red and green. Uh, later on, a uh, third installment called Blue debuted as well. 
Nintendo did not have high expectations for Pokemon since the Game Boy was six years old at this point and seemingly at the end of its life cycle as a console. Still, Pokemon sales steadily grew and defied expectations. Uh, Ishihara developed a competitive card game marketed as a simpler, more kid-friendly alternative to Magic the Gathering to tie into Pokemon, and it was one of the few card games to catch on in either Europe or North America. Competitive card games have a very long and storied history in Japan, but less so uh, in this hemisphere, Magic the Gathering being an exception. The manga publisher Masakazu Kobu was an early champion of Pokemon, commissioning its earliest manga adaptations, and he also pushed for an anime spin-off pretty much immediately after the franchise became visible. Both Nintendo and Ishihara were reluctant to go with this. They felt that a bad anime would tank the franchise before things even got started. Uh, once greenlit, however, the show was heavily focus grouped and fine-tuned before it debuted. For example, there was a long debate over whether the Pokémon should be able to speak or if they would only be able to make animal noises. They more or less settled on most of them yelling out their own names and various emotive levels, and then occasionally you'd have someone like uh, Meowth who could talk. While successful in Japan, there was trepidation about exporting the franchise, particularly to the United States. There was concerns that Pokemon was too cutesy for American kids, and several focus groups went poorly. An attempt was made to rebrand the characters as edgy and 90s extreme. <laughs> this included creating a Pokemon logo that uh, resembled wild-style graffiti, and other certain like extreme sports marketing things attached to the Pokemon's images. I could not find any of this conceptual art, but I would really like to see it. Anyways, these attempts were discarded as the franchise was branded and advertised more or less the same way it was treated in Japan. The games were released in the United States alongside the launch of the Game Boy Color in 1998. We only got red and blue, no green. The anime and card game were localized simultaneously. Pokemon's success in America was almost immediate. Red and blue sold 200,000 units in its first month. A bidding war for the anime ensued between the Fox Kids and Kids WB networks. Fox picked up Digimon when they lost out. Pokemon merchandise was not produced in accordance to demand, especially the cards. Media dubbed the sudden frenzy as Pokemania. Four Kids, the obscure and tiny distributor that dubbed and edited the uh, anime for American broadcast, suddenly became one of the biggest players in children's TV, more or less by default. Uh, this all but made a theatrical movie pretty much inevitable. It was made in Japan in 1998 and brought over here the following year. And with that out of the way, plot recap. This is the first time I've seen the movie since it first came out over 20 years ago. This is the same case for Letitia. Yeah, I haven't seen it since. I went, I went to see it in the theater with my friends. I remember after afterwards they gave everyone an Ancient Mew card, which was a Pokemon trading card, and it was Ancient Mew, and it had, like, it was it was all written in all this weird Anguid language. You couldn't actually read it, so you couldn't use it in the Pokemon trading card game, which is a collectible card. But I remember it very vividly. I vaguely remember that. I was maybe a couple years too old for Pokemon. I was starting high school. I mean, I had classmates in high school, and I had a Game Boy Color, and I played through the game. But after I beat the game, I didn't really play it to completion. I, I had a half-assed desire to, to catch them all, to grab all 150 original Pokemon, but I never really got there. I got bored and moved on to other things pretty quickly. My younger siblings, however, were very much within Pokemon's target demo and were swept along the wave. But yeah, for the film, before the proper film starts, just like in the days of old, there was a short film called Pikachu's Vacation. It was also included on the DVD, but not on the version that we watched, which was on a library app. At the moment, Hoopla is the only streaming platform that has this film. 
Anyways, Pikachu's vacation surrounds the Pokemon of Ash, Misty, and Brock being sent to spend the day at like a theme park built for Pokemon. Uh, Pikachu, Togepi, Psyduck, Bulbasaur, and Squirtle all run into each other, and they encounter a group of bullies consisting of a Raichu, Cubone, Meryl, and Snubble, I think that thing is called. The two groups compete against each other, but it leads to Ash's Charizard getting its head stuck in a pipe, Winnie the Pooh style. Pikachu, his friends, and the bullies work together and successfully free Charizard and rebuild the park that was destroyed in the process, spending the rest of the day playing before parting ways when their trainers return. It's a cute, wispy little bit of nothing. Every contemporary review I've read of this film just spent the whole time dogpiling on how much Pikachu's vacation sucks, but... I had a hard time getting mad at it the first time I saw it, which once again was decades ago. Maybe it's aged terribly. But uh, then we move on to the story of Mewtwo's origin. Uh, the American version of the movie edits this considerably. I'll get, we'll put a pin in that, we'll get back to it. Scientist Dr. Fuji is hired by Giovanni, leader of Team Rocket, to use his expertise in cloning to create a living weapon based on an eyelash from the mythical ancient Pokemon Mew. Getting back to Letitia with that ancient lettering that doesn't actually mean anything. Fuji was revealed to be allying with Giovanni as a means to fund his side project, the resurrection of his deceased daughter Amber. In a laboratory, the weapon eventually gains sentience and is named Mewtwo. Mewtwo befriends the salvaged consciousness of Amber, named Amber 2 in this case, as well as the clones of other Pokemon in the laboratory. However, Mewtwo is left deeply traumatized after Amber 2 and the rest of the clones decompose and die. To stabilize him, Fuji tranquilizes Mewtwo, causing him to forget the time he spent with his friends and emerging more sullen and lost and bitter. And that brings us to the main film, Mewtwo Strikes Back, which uh, Letitia felt is the title for a sequel, not the first appearance of Mewtwo. It just sounds like it. I mean, it's Mewtwo Strikes Back, so does it mean that somebody struck Mewtwo first? Because he's striking back, and then it says Pokemon the first movie. Is it to let you know, this is Pokemon, and it's the first movie, so you're like, is there going to be a second one? Is you going to name Pokemon the second movie? What is this? What is with the naming and the titling? I couldn't tell you. Anyways, after Mewtwo fully matures and awakens from a long slumber in a laboratory on New Island, he learns of his origin as Mew's clone from Dr. Fuji. Infuriated that Fuji and his colleagues see him as nothing more than an experiment and, you know, not a person with its own agency, he unleashes his incredibly strong psychic abilities, very Tetsuo style, and telekinetically destroys the laboratory, killing Fuji and the rest of the scientists. Giovanni, witnessing the carnage from afar, approaches and convinces Mewtwo to work with him to further develop and perfect his mental abilities. However, after Mewtwo learns of his purposes to be a weapon for Giovanni's benefit, he learns this because Giovanni fucking tells him Giovanni is not a clever person, Mewtwo escapes back to New Island where he plots revenge against humanity and Pokemon alike. Pokemon-anity? Um, I guess so. <laughs> Is that the word for, like, all of Pokemon is, like, a collective entity? I think it's just Pokemon. I think Pokemon is both plural and singular. After Mewtwo rebuilds the laboratory and establishes a base there, he invites several trainers with holographic messages to battle the world's greatest Pokemon trainer at New Island. Ash, Misty, and Brock receive a message and accept the invitation, but when they arrive at the port city, Old Shore Wharf, Mewtwo has created a storm, causing the boats in the wharf to be closed off for safety. As a result, Ash's group is picked up by Team Rocket disguised as Vikings on a boat, while other trainers use their powerful Pokemon to brave the waves. 
After the storm sinks the Viking vessel in the middle of the ocean, Ash and his friends use their Pokemon instead to reach New Island. They were a little skittish, they didn't think the, their Pokemon were strong enough, but uh, turns out it was okay. Even Team Rocket managed to make it their way over there, even though they don't have any water types. Yeah, they floated in on a Weezing, which was just the weirdest thing ever, seeing a Weezing have merged in the water and then floating to the top. I mean, it was like, doesn't that thing float in the air? How did they get it to sink down into the water? Escorted into the island's palace by the, the woman who appeared in the hologram, Ash and the other trainers encounter Mewtwo. The woman is revealed to be a brainwashed nurse, Joy, after she was released from Mewtwo's mind control. Mewtwo challenges the trainers using cloned Pokemon, coincidentally modeled after the deceased friends from his childhood. That part's not also in the American version. Meanwhile, Team Rocket uh, explores an inner sanctum underneath Mewtwo's stronghold, with a Mew innocuously following after them. After Mewtwo's clones effortlessly defeat the Challenger's Pokémon, he confiscates them and expands his clone army. Ash chases after his captured Pikachu down to the cloning lab, where Team Rocket's Meowth is also cloned. Ash destroys the cloning machine, frees the captured Pokémon, and leads them to confront Mewtwo and Mewtwo's clones. Mew then chooses this moment to reveal itself, and Mewtwo challenges it to uh, prove his own superiority. All the Pokemon originals battle their clones, save for a defiant Pikachu and Meowth, who make peace with their own, after realizing the senselessness of their fighting. Horrified at the pain and anguish felt on both sides of the battle, Ash puts himself in between a psychic blast between Mewtwo and Mew, causing Ash to become petrified. Pikachu tries to defibrillate Ash with its electricity, but fails. However, the tears of the Pokemon revive Ash. Earlier, this weird sagely woman with a vaguely Eastern European accent talks about this ancient legend where the world was supposed to be destroyed by a storm, but the tears of the Pokemon saved it. So this is foreshadowing. Oh, really nice foreshadowing, by the way. Mewtwo was gonna, you know, drown the world in a flood and rebuild it again with his clone army, like Noah or something. Moved by Ash's sacrifice, Mewtwo realizes that he should not have to be judged by his origins, but rather by the choices that he makes in his life. Departing with Mew and the clones, Mewtwo turns that back time to just before the trainers leave Old Shore Wharf and erases everybody's memories of the event. Back on the Old Shore Wharf, the now-restored Nurse Joy has returned to reopen the Pokemon Center in order to shelter everybody who is stranded by the storm. The storm, however, clears up immediately. Ash spots Mew flying through the clouds and tells his friends of how he saw another legendary Pokemon the day he left Pallet Town. Meanwhile, Team Rocket find themselves stranded on New Island, unable to remember how they got there. But, uh, they're Team Rocket, they just kind of roll their punches and do the best they can with what they're faced with. Anyways, that's the end of the film. So, how did you feel revisiting this film after so long? Um, I guess there was a lot of awe and wonderment when I first saw it as a kid, because it was Pokemon, and it was on the big screen, and then seeing, you know, the Pokemon Master being Mewtwo, I was really surprised, and now, of course, since I've already seen it, seeing it a second time, I was like, okay, the Pokemon Master is going to be Mewtwo, okay, here's when Ash runs in and gets turned to stone, okay, now the Pokemon are crying, it's really corny, now all the Pokemon are crying, and they're turning stone ash into solid flesh ash, and it was just sort of like, I don't know, it was like, it's clearly aimed towards children. You told me you were deeply moved when Ash was petrified in the film when you I saw was. it on the big screen. I was, and just seeing Pikachu tearing up and trying to sh electrocute him back to life. I, I, I mean, I was choking. I was choking back tears. I was so sad. I was like, Ash dies. How could you do this? 
And that scene where the Pokemon are dramatically fighting each other, and you get this boy band singing the song about how love should heal the world. Yeah, that was that was really a little I mean, on I, the nose. It, it was. It's supposed to, I think, mimic like the Backstreet Boys or In Sync singing it. Because I mean, it, it's, it's it's the American version of it, and I'm guessing in the Japanese version they didn't have the same music. So I'm guessing they were trying to bounce off of the popularity of boy bands at that point. But it was it was really like on the no, nose and over the top like thinking back and watching it as an adult but as a kid you were really you were really swept into it and you were like why are they fighting they're the same what really struck me in this is the subtitles which not only described the pokemon speaking but also added subtext to what they were saying it wasn't just pikachu it was nervous cry or enthusiastic agreement uh, my favorite was anguish slapping yeah that one was a little bit i was just like okay anguish slapping is very accurate a little bit too accurate cries mathematically Originally, the first Pokemon movie was intended to tie into various episodes of the TV series. However, after an infamous 1997 episode centering on Porygon led to a plurality of Japanese children experiencing seizures, heavy retooling was given to the program. Series director and film director uh, Kunihiro Uyama, producer Shoji Yoshikamakara, and screenwriter Takeshi Shudo were more or less left to their own devices without any knowledge of any upcoming episodes that they could seed for. Project Pikachu, who oversaw the TV show, was not directly involved in this movie. The movie team decided to explore the existential philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre, particularly in the prologue that fills out Mewtwo's backstory, which is not in the American version. Forced into existence without being given a choice, Mewtwo gradually realizes that his lack of agency is arbitrarily imposed upon him, and that he is free to discover his own purpose, that is his character arc in the Japanese version. The supporting character of Amber, who is not in the American version of the movie, is given the name I in the Japanese script. This was meant to reflect the story's emphasis on self-determination. Not much of that in the American version. No, I mean, there was a lot of in the beginning of, of like, this, this voiceover that's saying, Who am I? What is my purpose? Why am I here? And you're just thinking to yourself, I don't know, dude, you gotta figure that out for yourself. Yeah, that's essentially the underpinnings of existentialism. We've talked about that philosophy on previous episodes, so I don't want to delve too far into it, but I think the ideas are summed up very well in uh, an anecdote that is often brought up when discussing Sartre, where he's teaching a class, and one of his students asks him a personal question. Um, War is broken out, and he believes that the cause is just and wants to enlist, but he has an elderly mother that he needs to take care of, and any time away from her might jeopardize her health and also take away whatever limited time she has left with him. And he asks Sartre to describe which choice is more ethical. And Sartre said that it was impossible for him to choose for him. He has to figure it out on his own, because reality has no objective purpose or meaning, or if it is, it is completely unknowable based on the limited uh, faculties of human consciousness. We all have to look within ourselves and find something that makes sense for us. So anyways, that's Mewtwo's journey in this. For some reason, Americans thought that this was a little too heavy for eight-year-olds. Um, I don't know. I think I think that the movie was pretty heavy for an eight-year-old anyways. And also, I think uh, eight-year-olds are a lot smarter than most people give them credit for. And also, if you talk to them as if they aren't stupid, they appreciate it. Yeah, they appreciate it a lot. 
The Four Kids localization of Pokemon, the first movie, was written by Michael Hagney and John Tukey. They chose to ignore the Japanese script's commentary on genetic engineering, animal testing, and, as I've already covered, existential philosophy. They also made Mewtwo more cartoonishly evil, claiming that a conflicted and morally ambiguous villain would confuse Pokemon's target audience of 5 to 10 year olds. They later claimed that they regret that decision, particularly uh, cutting out Mewtwo's prologue where, you know, he bonds with Amber and forms uh, memories that later traumatize him. They do think that ultimately that would have made the character more dynamic and that the kids probably would have appreciated that. Although the movie made money anyways. Four Kids president Norman J. Grossfeld also commissioned a new score. You are right, Letitia, that is not the same music. Ralph Chouquet uh, uh, handled the Mewtwo's Revenge segment, while Manny Corallo and John LaSauer handled Pikachu's Vacation. It was thought that the Japanese score was too stodgy and traditional for American kids to respond to. A soundtrack featured the tie-in song Don't Say You Love Me by Norwegian pop group M2M. Songs by NSYNC, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Bewitched, Vitamin C, Aaron Carter, and 98 Degrees were also on the album, despite most of those songs not being used in the proper movie. The soundtrack is almost aggressively 1999. It sounds aggressively 1999. I mean, just naming those, I'm just thinking to myself, oh man, what am I going to see with the bedazzled jeans and stuff like that coming out of the woodwork? You know, you know, the Junko jeans and your little um, digital pet and all that. I mean, there is some malleability somewhere. Like, NSYNC were still popular in, like, 2001, but, like, Bewitched. Nobody gave a shit about Bewitched except in 1999. There was also, among many other tie-ins, a Burger King promotion. This involved toys and a series of six 23-carat gold Pokemon cards, which sold out rather quickly. The toys, however, were recalled when a 13-month-year-old child suffocated while playing uh, with one. Another child survived the choking incident before the recall, and a third infant died shortly after the recall. Burger King settled out of court with the families. You know, you think to yourself, back in the day, they would just give kids anything. I mean, I remember being as a kid, my mom was just like, here's a rock and a stick, go play with it, you little fucktard. Just go ahead, just, just play with a rock and a stick. I don't care, just stay out of my way. And yet, millennials are still the largest generation in American history. Yeah, y'all tried. I know they tried to kill us off, but I mean, just thinking about all the all the recalls of TV episodes, like the Porygon episode and stuff like that. It's it's one of those things where it's like all these things. I I just remember in school they were always talking about drugs and weapons and drugs, the Dare program, and I remember talking about drugs all the time. And I was thinking to myself, oh my god, I'm gonna get assaulted with drug dealers 24/7. And then I'm I'm graduating high school and I'm like you know what I've never done coke I've never done weed I've never done any of that stuff but I do remember some really suspicious Pokemon trades yeah when I was seven years old I figured like by the time I turned 13 just random people would pop out of the woodwork and try to force me to take drugs and um no they're just like drugs are expensive my drugs go away kid yeah, they're basically, that's all they are. They're like, you gonna pay for this, drugs? But I mean, I think Pokemon, I mean, it was weird. Pokemon was such a fad at the time. that I remember um, on the Home Shopping Network, they were selling a holographic Charizard. And the woman is going over all the pros of owning a holographic Charizard. And I just saw the price that they were selling it for. And I was like, well, I wish I owned a holographic Charizard. I wish I could call up and buy that right now. All right, kids, um, Google Home Shopping Network. I'm not gonna get into that. <laughs> Uh, the Japanese version of Pokemon, the first movie, received measured praise for its surprisingly mature uh, takes on the ethical questions surrounding cloning, genetic engineering, and cruelty to animals. 
put this in historic perspective, uh, the first proper clone, Dolly the Sheep, uh, was very, very recent when this Pokemon movie came out. I think it was like 1997. So that was fresh in everybody's brains when it came out. And I remember like in my middle school science class, there were mock debates about the uh, ethical qualities of cloning. Is it okay to extract from stem cells, particularly if abortion is involved? If we criminalize cloning, does that mean that like private billionaires will do it without any kind of regulatory supervision on hidden islands or stuff like that? Uh, is it possible that we can use cloning to resurrect extinct species or uh, rescue endangered species? And all of these questions are all in the air. Although those last two are, seem to be leading towards probably not. So that's definitely in the subtext of this film. There was, however, some criticism about tackling existentialism, a topic often seen as too complex for eight-year-olds, as I already mentioned. The American release was critically savaged. Most reviewers considered the Pikachu's vacation segment as treacly, underdeveloped, vapid, and pointless. It was also seen as a poor counterpoint to the Mewtwo story, which was often branded as ponderous, self-important, and laughably moralistic. I tracked down every 1999 review of this film I could come across, and a good chunk of them were boomers offended that nothing was spoon-fed to them. They expected to go into this Pokemon movie not knowing anything about the franchise and just to have it explained to them. And no, Pokemon the first movie isn't going to mean anything to you unless you already have a decent working idea of what Pokemon is. Yeah, Pokemon the first movie is definitely for fans of the TV show too. If you just play the video games, you're going to recognize the Pokemon in it, but you're not going to recognize any of the characters. So you're going to go in and be like, who are these people and why are they important? Like when Jesse and James, they go, who's that Pokemon? And then they go, it's Meowth. It's like, that's a callback to the show. And they do that twice, too. Yeah, this isn't obvious now because it's been almost 30 years since Pokemon's around. And through cultural osmosis, they're just everywhere, whether you uh, want to know about them or not. Like, my mom doesn't give a shit about Star Wars, but she still has some vague idea of what a Chewbacca is. And she also has some vague idea of what a Pikachu is. But we weren't at that level. Pokemon had only been around for three or four years, depending on how long you've been paying attention. There was also some criticism for the Mewtwo segment's emphasis on anti-violence, a theme seen by many as hollow and hypocritical, since the very premise of Pokemon centers on celebrating combat sports. During this one instance, the Pokemon attacking each other is bad. Yeah, that always got me, though, when, Pokemon, when, when the song plays, and it's like, why are they fighting? And you get all choked up, but then, like, five minutes before that, it's like you, Ash is trying to punch Mewtwo in the chest, and he just sends him flying. And you're just sort of like, oh, okay, I guess Ash isn't going to be able to punch that Pokemon in the chest. You know, I guess they had to build to something, and yeah, the Pokemon in this were depicted as being, like, haggard and tired and possibly injured in ways that they are not traditionally depicted at as during typical fights in an ordinary episode of the TV show. Uh, retrospective reviews of this film often focus on four kids' decision to trim out Mewtwo's prologue and ignore the Japanese script's weightier subtext. Pokemon the first movie, however, was nonetheless a massive commercial hit. It made 7.6 billion yen in Japan and 85.7 million in North America. Most box office estimates put its gross uh, worldwide as just under 200 million. American media coined the term Pokeflu to describe the throngs of children who ditched school to see the film on its Wednesday premiere. 
Did you have poke flu? No, I did not have poke flu. My mom was very strict and I had to go to school no matter what. I don't think I ever missed a day of school due to being sick. I got suspended and I wasn't allowed to go to school. But I was never sick enough that I couldn't go to school. It didn't help that my mom worked at a hospital, so she would know if I was faking being sick or not. Because I remember one time I tried that and she's like, okay, let me go get the thermometer. And I was just like, oh shit, she's getting the thermometer. I'm screwed. I met your mom. I believe every word of this. Pokemon, the first movie, remains the highest grossing anime film in the United States. Uh, it was also the only anime film to top the uh, American box office until the 2021 Demon Slayer film. And before we move on, let's talk about the cast. I didn't write the Japanese voice cast down because I haven't seen a single episode of Pokemon in its original dialogue track. Usually we're a um, sub-not-dub household, but like I only ever saw Pokemon on network television, so I've only seen it, the four kids American version. But anyways, in the American version, the voice of Ash is provided by Veronica Taylor. Okay. Is there anything you'd like to say about Veronica Taylor's performance? Is there anything about Ash that leaps out to you? Um, he has like a weird deep rasp to his voice. Like he's going through puberty. Yet he's only supposed to be 10, right? Yeah, he's only supposed to be 10. Ash is Taylor's most well-known performance, although uh, she also uh, is on Sailor Moon. She voices Sailor Pluto. Oh, okay. Of course she voices Sailor Pluto. Yeah, she's a voice acting lifer. Uh, she's also the central protagonist in Ape Escape. She's using her Ash voice in that. There's no dis difference there. Even though I was slightly too old for Pokemon, I did have a lot of younger kids in my family, so that was just background radiation for me pretty often. And yeah, I do have like some nostalgic fondness for Veronica Taylor's Ash voice. Not sure why, but there it is. Uh, moving on, Rachel Lillis was the voice actress for both Misty and Jessie. Well, they sound completely different. I wouldn't imagine that she voiced both of them. Oh, uh, if you watch an episode again, you're like, oh yeah, that totally is the same person. Oh, okay. Uh, everyone also voices various random Pokemon. Lilith is uh, Jigglypuff, by the way. Oh, I can see her as Jigglypuff. Yeah, she's just sort of there, providing ballast. I mean, in the game, Red, not Ash, I guess that's his name, Brock and Misty are the first two trainers that you battle in the gyms, but in the anime, they decided to have those two characters accompany Ash on his journey, just so, you probably so you can have somebody to talk to. I would imagine so. I mean, just one-sided conversations with his Pokemon all the time would be kind of boring, because you don't have me out there to translate. So you're just listening to Ash talking, and then the Pikachu just going, Pika, Pika, Pee! Which apparently, Pika, Pika, Pee can mean three different things, because I've heard the Pokemon say the same thing over and over again, and Meowth translates it, and it's like a complete paragraph of different words and stuff like that. And all I heard was him saying, Pika, Pika, Pee, like three times in a row. Poke-speak is a tonal language, I guess. Uh, yeah, then we have Eric Stewart. He is Brock and James. I can, I can understand that. Yeah, because James is essentially Brock, who is a, a little swishy. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know anything about the voice actors themselves, but I imagine they must enjoy voicing Jesse and James more than Misty and Brock, just so they can be the inept comic foils, the uh, incompetent henchmen who are supposed to be opposing the protagonist, but they're too dopey to actually affect them in any ways. You know, kind of like 80s cartoon uh, retinue in that vein, Bebop and Rocksteady, various subordinates of Megatron, so on and so forth. Yeah, they get star-screamed a lot. Like, every episode ends with them just going flying into the air. And they always say, Team Rocket's blasting off again! And I'm like, one day they're gonna blast off and they're not gonna come back. They're just gonna die. They're just gonna hit something and they're gonna die. Yeah, they don't even fight Ash in this movie because Mewtwo is an actual scary villain. They're just sort of there to bear witness. 
Speaking of which, we have Addie Blostein as Meowth. I mean, I like Meowth. I mean, I, I think he, I think she, I think they do a good Meowth voice. As uh, Leticia intimated, Addie Blostein was one of the first transgender voice actors, uh, the first prominent ones. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, she wound up dying in 2007 of some uh, gastric uh, issue. She was only 48. That is why Meowth has a different voice from that point on. Well, that sucks. Yeah, that's a bummer. But, um, you know, once again, there is something about that Meowth voice that leaps out to me. Just telling the relentless string of terrible cat puns. Also, I think it was kind of bullshit that Togepi ended up going with Misty because Meowth raised that egg. I remember that. I haven't seen that episode in like 20 fucking years, but I remember that. Yeah, but I mean, Misty was like the first thing that Togepi saw in a cat, so it kind of imprinted on Misty. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm not saying that the world's fair or even the Pokemon world is fair. It's, that's just how it is. Alright, then we have Philip Bartlett as Mewtwo. I mean, he does do a good Mewtwo. I mean, he does sound like a villain. Yeah, I want- A villain having a constant existential crisis, though. Like, Mewtwo is always just like, why am I here? What is my purpose? And it's like, you're gonna ask the- you're gonna ask this dude, and he's gonna- He's like, well, he asked this to Giovanni, and Giovanni's like, I'll tell you. Just put on this suit of armor that suppresses your powers. And he puts it on, he's like, hey, my powers aren't working properly. He's like, no, no, no. It helps you to focus him. It doesn't make you weaker. And he just buys it. And I'm just like, come on, Mewtwo. You're psychic. Can't you read minds? Can't you tell when people are feeding you bullshit? And you know what? If Giovanni didn't just flat out say, I am using you as a pawn, I don't even see you as a, as a person who has wants and desires of their own, then Mewtwo would have just kept happily chugging along. And you think, I mean, he's a psychic Pokemon. He can read people's minds. You think at any point he'd just read Giovanni's mind and go, oh, wow, this guy doesn't have the best intentions for me. I better back off. Oh, well, well, I mean, Mewtwo was, like, what, 18 hours old when he meets Giovanni? About, yeah, I mean, he's a couple hours old, but still. You think that he, you think, I mean, they mention Giovanni when he's in the tank, and he hears them talking about Giovanni. They're like, tell, tell Giovanni's helicopter not to land or something like that. So the guy comes out and is like, my name's Giovanni. You think he'd put two and two together and be like, is this that Giovanni that they were talking about? Is that a helicopter? You think he'd be, like, putting two and two together, but no, he doesn't. Yeah, one of the retrospective reviews I read was a 1999 one in Entertainment Weekly, which was very clearly written for the adults and not the kids. I mean, like, your kids are going to drag you to see this movie, so here's what it's about. And they described Mewtwo as the Darth Vader of Pokemon, which is a lazy comparison, but that voice does give you a reason to make it. It does, and also, I mean, Darth Vader, basically, I mean, if you've seen the prequel movies, then, then it makes more sense, though, because then it's like Darth Vader is just a, it's just a confused kid who gets picked up his planet, who's just like, oh, yeah, you have special force powers, we'll train you how to use them, and then they're like, oh, no, we're not going to make you a master because you're too angry all the time, and he's just like, okay, I'm just going to continue to be angry because you won't make me master, and mm. it's just like, you should just, if they, it, I can imagine the entire Star Wars universe would have gone completely different if they just made Anakin a Jedi master. Or, you know, they stop telling the 16-year-old kids that they're not allowed to jerk off. Yeah, that whole part where he's like, you can't be with Padme. Was, I was just like, come on, dude. What are you? Like, what is this? Like a missionary kind of deal or something like that? What are you doing here? All right, well, Shame. we're getting off topic. That brings us to themes. Uh, the thing I wrote down was just swinging back to where I got to before was what is the appeal of this franchise? Why has it endured more or less chugging along for the past 30 years? Like I said, it, it, after it died out of being a fad, like around 2001, 2002, like it never stopped. It just receded into the background and just becomes some other pop culture thing. Like every couple of years you get a new James Bond or a Godzilla movie and you get more Pokemon shit. 
at least my theory as to why it has persisted the way it has is that it plays into the human desire to constantly seek out pattern recognition and also to curiously look at and catalog and compartmentalize things and put them together in ranked lists. That's something that we like to do, especially if we're neurodivergent. Reading about the uh, creator of Pokemon and how he came up with a basic concept of the characters to, you know, Satoshi Tajiri, I imagine that guy's on the spectrum. If he just collected bugs and made little lists of where the bugs are and how many there are and what their qualities are, and it's just him projecting his little idiosyncrasies onto a video game. But it wouldn't have caught on the way it did if that didn't spark something in everyone who played it. Yeah, it was one of those things, reading the Pokedex was always really interesting, because you're just like, wow, that's an interesting little factoid, okay, Pokemon, go and fight that other Pokemon. And not only that, but there were just like, you know, people memorizing the rap song, and... and oh, I, I remember the Poke rap. And I do think that this might have spurred things in, uh, in certain kids, and I'm guessing a lot of 38-year-old park rangers and ecologists started out as Pokemon nerds when they were in middle school. I can imagine that. I can see that. I can see that. I can see a lot of people, people who, who became like veterinarians or like zookeepers who liked Pokemon growing up. They were just like, oh yeah, I really love Pokemon growing up. But then it's one of those things where it was like, maybe, you remember that thing where like PETA was like, was advocating against Pokemon? They're like, they were like, it's, it's promoting like animal cruelty and like fighting. And they showed like, they showed like a bloody and beaten up Pikachu or something like that. And they were just like, PETA against Pokemon. And I was just like, okay, I didn't think about it that way. I was just thinking about making them fight. I wasn't thinking about like realistically, like it's not like, you know, you, you tell your Pokemon to you slash and it opens up a huge gash and you the Pokemon and blood pours out. It's HP par just goes down, and then, you know, when you when it gets tuckered out, it faints. I never thought about it dying and bleeding and stuff like that. Why are you going to fill my head with that imagery, PETA? If you were a millennial or, you know, a little younger at the height of the Pokemon craze in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, one of the first edgelord opinions you'd come across is that Pokemon is no different from dogfighting. The first kid in your class who came to that comparison thought they were very, very clever for doing it. And, you know, making Michael Vick comparisons. Kids, Google Michael Vick if you're curious. Or rather, don't. He's an awful man. I mean, it's not wrong. It is a competitive combat sports type of thing, and the franchise itself stumbles when it ever it addresses it a little too realistically. For example, this film that we're currently talking about. It also does take place in a fantasy kingdom, and while I do think that Pokemon might have inspired a lot of veterinarians or park ragers or conservationists, I don't think there were too many people who got into dogfighting because they started with Pokemon. I don't think so. I don't know if you can imagine pitting two Pokemon against each other and thinking, what if I did this in real life, but with animals? Yeah, I mean, the stated text of the film is that the Pokemon aren't supposed to be your servants. They're supposed to be your friends. Your friends that constantly obey your commands and do things with you. It's a hard circle to square. It's a hard one. I mean, there's this. I mean, when they introduced the friendship mechanic in the second game, where if you made the Pokemon like you enough, it would evolve based on friendship. And I just remember trying to get my Pokemon to like me and being like, "Why don't you love me enough to evolve? Why don't you love me?" No, you know, you're just making me a needy trainer. Is trying to emotionally manipulate my Pokemon into evolving. Oh, I did that a lot, though. I mean, I, I brought them to get the haircuts. I would I would make sure not to feed them any of the. They had like these uh these herbs and stuff that you could feed your Pokemon in the middle of that 
battle. But those lowered the friendship level because they tasted like crap. But if you gave them like fresh water or lemonade or soda, then that would make their happiness level go straight through the roof. So I was always feeding them spring water and stuff like that and giving them haircuts. I remember once bringing my Eevee in and giving it like 10 haircuts in a row just to max out its friendship. I was like, do you love me enough yet to evolve into an Espeon? Do you love me enough? Oh, so many foibles after we get past Ruby and Sapphire. Oh my god. Ruby and Sapphire really, really... I remember when they brought in Pokemon Natures and feeding them Pokeblocks, and there's one Pokemon in particular that only evolves once you max out its beauty stat. But if it has a nature that hinders it eating the Pokeblocks, or doesn't want to eat enough Pokeblocks to max out its beauty stat, then you just have a really pretty looking Phoebus, and you're just like, oh, you're never going to evolve, are you? Oh, well. That's everything in my notes. Are there any parting shots that you'd like to uh, give out before we close things out in Pokemon, the first movie? I remember the solid gold Pokemon trading cards. I remember one of my friends had them, along with some Pokemon toys. I remember them looking really cool. Yeah, I wonder how much they're going for in the secondary market. Probably something stupid. Probably some crazy high price. Yeah, they, they weren't really a common item. I can imagine them selling for crazy high dollars. Uh, granted, when I was in the fourth grade, I collected X-Men cards, and I thought that they would be worth a lot of money someday. I looked them up about, like, six months ago. They're going for, like, a dollar apiece. Mm, it's something, though. So, who knows? Anyways, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Join us next time.